If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 32. Psalm chapter 32. Uh, We are in a series entitled Sunday Rhythms where we're looking every single week at a different practice or a different aspect of our Sunday worship order. And we are calling this the Sunday Rhythms because it's these kind of weekly rhythms that we go through every single week uh, as we come to church. Uh, It's these rhythms that powerfully shape us and form us, whether we're aware or not. And so today we're considering the rhythm of confessing our sins or um, repentance. And so as we look at this passage, um, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Uh, But this passage is so rich that um, there's so much I, I wanted to cover. And so if you look at your sermon insert... There are three points, but I kind of snuck in uh, four points under the third point, um, and you'll soon see that I snuck in two points under point two, and then seven points under point one. So uh, I just tell you up front, so don't get angry with me. So I want to jump right into this. So would you all stand with me as we give now our full attention to the reading of God's holy word in Psalm chapter 32. So here now the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And would you join me now in a moment of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can receive it in great joy. We thank you that Christianity is not a religion that we discover, but is one that is revealed to us. For your word itself is gracious, for you could have stayed hidden. But as you promise us in your word, and even in this psalm, that there is a time when you will be found because you have revealed yourself to us. And so, God, help us this afternoon to have not only ears to hear, but eyes to see and a heart that feels and understands and believes. Lord, bless this hour. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This past October, we celebrated the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know that it began when a German monk named Martin Luther took 95 theses and he nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg. Now, these 95 theses he didn't know at the time 
He thought he was just putting up 95 points of debate with the other university professors, but he didn't know it would spark the Protestant Reformation. Now, the 95 theses, probably not all 95 apply to us, but the first one certainly does. Let me read you the very first theses that Martin Luther had written. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Let me read that one more time. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And what Martin Luther meant by this is repentance is not just a one-time act when you trust in the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Rather, all of the Christian life is repentance. Repentance is a continual posture before God as we acknowledge that we are sinners and we need his forgiveness. So repentance is the daily substance of Christianity. And so important, in fact, if you take a look at our worship service, at our order of worship, we've designed it to include both a private and a public confession of sin, a time of repentance. But here's what we need to understand. We can only confess our sins because we have the confidence of the assurance of pardon that comes right after. You see, we don't repent of our sins and confess our sins in the hope that Jesus will forgive us. But we do it in the confidence that he has forgiven us. And this changes our attitude toward the worship, toward the confession, toward repentance, toward the assurance of pardon. Now, let me ask you this question. You don't have to say it aloud, but just answer it in your mind. What do you believe is the climax, the highlight of our worship service? What's your most favorite part? I hope you're not thinking the dismissal. <laughs> what, is your, what is the most favorite, high, you know, biggest part of the, of the service? How many of you would say it's the confession of sin? It's the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. And in one sense, I think almost our service is kind of gearing us and leading us toward this moment. Because our order of worship, it tells a story. It tells the gospel story. And so when we come in, we're actually rehearsing a story. And this is how the story works. The story begins with God's invitation. We call it the call to worship. God says, come and behold my majesty. We come. And so we pray, God, we behold you. And we sing a song of adoration. Next, we confess our faith in him. God, this is what we believe about you. This is why you're worthy of our worship. Yet, if you're really self-conscious, if you're really thinking and reflecting about it, everything you've just said about God, you quickly realize who he is. He is the creator. He is the Lord. He is holy. And you have fallen way short of his glory. And so our service actually reaches this sort of conflict, this drama, by the time you get to the confession of sin. And so we confess our sins together. We do it privately. We do it individually. But there's this beautiful moment because when we confess our sin, both publicly, corporately, and then we do it privately, when we confess our sin, we're coming before the Lord and we are lowering our head. We're acknowledging our sin before him. But do you know what happens in the assurance of pardon? When we lower our head before God, he lifts up our head toward him. He says, you are no poor beggar. You are no stranger. You are no debtor. In Jesus Christ, you are my child. 
You owe me nothing. Instead, I'm giving to you the riches in Jesus Christ. See, I hope by explaining it this way that next week when we come and we do the order of worship that you don't come, oh, this, this part is really awkward. Oh, I have a friend here. And when we do the prayer of confession, oh, this is just, I cringe because what are they thinking? Friends, without admitting fault, without admitting our great need, why would the gospel ever be so sweet? Why would Jesus ever be so good? This is one of the highlights of our service. In fact, by the time we get to the assurance of pardon, it's my belief that we could actually end service because you have heard the gospel. You have heard the good news. The rhythm of confessing, it's so important, not just to the corporate life of the church, but to our individual lives as well. And so this is our topic. This is our topic today, confession of sin, regular repentance. And so we're looking at Psalm 32, and Psalm 32 is what we call a penitential psalm. There are seven of these in the book of Psalms, seven penitential psalms, which are really just characterized by confession, repentance, and forgiveness. So this is the second of seven penitential psalms. And so as we spend our time in Psalm 32, here's our gospel truth. Here's our one-sentence summary. True gospel-centered repentance leads to both receiving a blessing and being a blessing. True gospel-centered repentance leads to both receiving a blessing and being a blessing. And so what I love about this psalm is that it actually gives us three pictures or three portraits. Three pictures or three portraits. Three pictures. One of somebody who is unrepentant. One of somebody who was falsely repentant. And then one of someone who is truly repentant. And so those are sort of our three themes or three points today. A portrait of unrepentance. False repentance, true repentance, and then we're going to take a look more closely at what a truly repentant person looks at, looks like. So here we go. First point, the unrepentant or no repentance. So this first picture is found in verses 3 and 4. So keep your Bible open or your sermon sheet in front of you. Verses 3 and 4, read with me. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The psalmist describes a time when he kept silent. This means he refused to acknowledge his sin. He refused to admit them and bring them before the Lord. So in other words, he's saying, I had all this guilt, but I just carried it inside of me. This guilt of sin, I refused to let the Lord know. And the result of that, the result of holding on to this guilt is I felt like my life was falling apart. I felt like my life was falling apart. This guilt inside of me is eating at me from inside, and I don't know what to do with it. So maybe you've experienced something like this before. When you keep something bottled up inside... Or when you are walking around with nagging sin in your life or that source of secret shame. It doesn't sit well with you. It has a powerful way of actually harming you. And David says in three different ways. He basically says the first, sometimes it will lead to physical discomfort. David felt it. That's what he said. My bones were wasting away. Because hiding your guilt, hiding your sin, sometimes if you're, if you're leading a secret life or you're living a, a lie, it actually, your stomach turns sour. There are physical manifestations of holding this guilt inside of you. Have you ever felt something like this? Well, not only is there physical discomfort, there's actually a kind of psychological distress. 
All that the psalmist can do is groan all the day long. He can't even offer a proper lament, a proper confession before God. He feels just shriveled up inside. He says, I feel dried, dried up as if I'm in the middle of the summer's heat. I I can't even say anything. I just groan before God. And then he talks about a spiritual alienation. He says, it feels like God's hand was against me. Right? Sometimes when we're living in secret shame, when we're living with guilt inside of us, it feels like God's hand is pressing on us, almost like he's keeping us at an arm's distance, keeping us away from him. We feel alienated from him. And the point is simply this. When you refuse to repent of your sins, when you have guilt that's gnawing at you inside, there's nothing good that can come out of it. And the reality is we've all experienced this guilt, haven't we? But the real question is what do we do with it? And the unrepentant person has to do something with their guilt. In their conscience, they know that they are in the wrong. So there's a variety of things that we do with it. Let me give you seven of them. The first is this. We blame shift. You don't take ownership of what you did. Instead, you look to blame somebody else to accuse another person. You feel guilt. You don't want to feel it. You say, well, they made me do it. They brought this out of me. They are responsible for what I did, not me. So you shift the guilt to somebody else. That's, some of you deal with guilt in this way. Another way is this. You dismiss it. Maybe you dismiss your guilt by denying that you did any wrong at all. Who are you to tell me that what I did was wrong? Why should I feel guilty? Stop putting your morality, your standards, stop judging me, stop oppressing me with what you think is right and wrong. I don't have to be ashamed of this. And so you Dismiss it. Some of you, thirdly, normalize it. You convince yourself that everybody else does it, so it really must not be that bad. You tell yourself, I'm not the only one who does this. Look at everybody else. It can't be that bad if other people are doing it. And so you try to normalize your actions. Fourthly, you try to forget it. You try to distract yourself or you deaden yourself to that feeling. How many of us do this? You have guilt. You have something inside of you. And so you medicate yourself. You sit in front of the TV and you try to just numb yourself to it. You gamble. You drink yourself away. You go shopping. Whatever to occupy your mind to forget that feeling that is gnawing at you inside. Fifthly, maybe you try to pay for it. What do I mean by this? You you try to make up for that guilt that you feel by working harder in other areas of your life. You hope that by doing really good here, that people will look at that and stop looking at this other thing. You're trying to draw attention away from your feelings of guilt. You're trying to outwork your guilt through your performance. You try to pay for it. Sixthly, maybe you punish yourself. You feel so guilty that the way you make up for it is you deny yourself certain things. Sometimes this will look like actually physically hitting yourself. We do this sometimes. Oh, man, and we kind of hit ourselves in the head. Maybe you beat yourself up with criticism. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, you try to heap guilt. Maybe you think of yourself in the worst possible light. I'm just a scumbag. And you think you can atone for your guilt by making yourself feel miserable. So you self-inflect insults or injury to cover up that guilt. And seventh, maybe you judge others. 
You demonize other people. You have to put them down. Why? Because that's the only way you will actually feel good about yourself. So you say, yeah, sure, I've done this, but that person has done that. Isn't that far worse? Look at how bad they are. And you want to feel better about yourself, so you criticize other people to feel superior and less guilty. You see, all of these ways are just ways that we are dealing with guilt because we don't want to come and repent and bring them before the Lord. These are just examples that maybe you kind of connect with one, two, three of them, four of them. Maybe if you're honest, all seven of them in some way. But here's the thing. When you refuse to repent, you are actually developing a rhythm. A rhythm of remaining silent and and shutting yourself up. And your conscience is not able to deal with your sin. And if this is the case, you really do. It really does manifest itself in, in physical sickness or psychological suffering or feelings of spiritual alienation. So that's the first picture. A man who kept his mouth silent and he felt his bones were wasting away. The second picture is of someone who was falsely repentant or what we might call religious repentance. Now, what do I mean by that? Look with me at verses 8 and 9. David writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle or it will not stay near you. Now, the psalmist says something really interesting here. He compares people to two kinds of animals, horses and mules. Uh, But the reason he does this is because both animals um, were animals that you used in the field. You used to carry things. They were service animals. And these animals would only do a certain task or go down a certain path because they were curbed with bit and brittle. Now, what does that mean? Bit and brittle are basically things that you would place in the animal's mouth to control it and to steer it. And David is saying this, that without these instruments, the horse and the mule will not stay near you. They will go wherever they want to go. Left alone, without being controlled, without external factors, they will just go and do their own thing. The only reason that they obey, the only reason that they go the way they're supposed to go is because they're controlled, they're forced. There's an external pressure, an external fear upon them. And he's saying, in the same way, there are people who will live their lives a certain way and they look repentant, they look like they're loving after God, but the only reason that they're living that kind of way is because of some kind of external force or some kind of external pressure. That if those things were taken away, that they will go and do whatever they want. They'll go do what their heart desires. Why? Because their heart hasn't actually been transformed. It hasn't been changed. You know, some people look this way. They look like they're repentant. They look like they're sorry and that they love God and they're living a certain way, but they're not motivated by hatred of sin and great love for Christ. They're either motivated by some self-centered purpose or some self-righteous purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example of both. And I hope that that as you hear these, that you begin to search your heart and that you're honest with yourself and that you're honest with God. So first is that some people repent for self-centered purposes or self-centered reasons. They repent and they act a certain way because they want to avoid punishment. Do you remember being a kid and being told to do something and just that rebellious nature and you just, you just have to do the exact opposite. You're rebellious, you're disobedient, you feel good until you realize that look on your parents' face, that look on the teacher's face and you think, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. 
So what are you quick to say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, we all know that that apology is, does not come from a motivation of great sorrow over what you did. That I'm sorry, that apology comes from a motivation that's selfish. You realize that you went a little too far. You know there's punishment coming, so you say, I'm sorry, you apologize to avoid a punishment. That's what we call false repentance. And from the outside, sure, they said, I'm sorry. They look like they're in tears. They look like they're apologetic. But in their hearts, they're not. In the same way, there are some Christians who think that they've truly repented, but all it is is self-centeredness. They want to avoid punishment from God. They want to spare themselves. Why does a horse and why does a mule stay in line? Because it doesn't want to constantly be yanked and jerked the other way. That's why it complies. So self, some repentance is self-centered. It's false repentance. It's not true. It's not real. Why? Because if that threat is gone, if that punishment is removed, then what? You will go living however you want to live. There's no true, no true transformation. But then there's secondly a group of people who repent for self-righteous reasons or self-righteousness. They believe that their repentance is a good work that obligates God to pardon them. Now, this is, can get a little confusing, but, but here's what I mean. There are some people who say, I'm sorry. But the reason that they're repentant and say, I'm sorry, is because they think by saying, I'm sorry, now God has to forgive them. So they're actually using the I'm sorry as the good work that forces God, obligates God to forgive them. We've all kind of, we even experience this in our everyday lives, right? Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? Somebody said something or did something that deeply hurt you or deeply offended you? And then when you confronted them about it, they're like, I'm sorry. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What was that? You didn't mean that. I want, I want to talk to you about this. Don't try to dismiss it with, I'm sorry. And then they become angry and they raise their voice. Well, I told you I'm sorry. What else do you want from me? What are they saying to you? They're essentially saying this. You have to forgive me. I said the magic three words. I said, I am sorry. What else is left? And their belief is that I'm sorry. Saying I'm sorry obligates you. It merits your forgiveness regardless of their attitude. So in the same way, some of us think that repentance obligates God to forgive us. We self-righteously think that our confession is the good work that we bring to God. But you know, the Puritan, one Puritan pastor once said this. He said, do you know that even your repentance needs repenting of? That even your repentance needs repenting of. Even your repentance needs to bathe in the blood of Jesus. Repentance is not the good work by which you obligate or you force or you make God forgive you. So false repentance, it can look godly, it can look religious on the outside, but that's because it's motivated by all the wrong things. So as you search your own heart and you confess before God, is it coming from a self-centeredness, a selfishness of just wanting to avoid punishment, avoid the consequences? Or maybe it's coming from a self-righteous position. You think, okay, well now God has to forgive me. And David graciously warns us. He says, be not like the horse or the mule. Don't be like those who falsely repent and think this is what God desires. 
So that's the second picture that we see in the psalm. Now we get to the third, the glorious picture, the truly repentant person, or what we might call gospel repentance. Now, I'm going to go a little deep into the scripture, so all eyes up here, okay? Now, if you notice at the beginning of this psalm, there's this little note right at the beginning. Before we even get to the verse one, it says this, a masculine of David. Now, we're so quick to jump past that. But a masculine is basically, it's a Hebrew term of instruction or teaching. So this is an instruction or a teaching of David. And what that means is that what David writes in the psalm is basically he's giving us a blueprint of repentance. Now, why is this important? Because some of you may know, you may not have known Psalm 32, but many of you may know Psalm 51. If you know Psalm 51, it, is, it was part of our call to worship. It is that great, it's, a, it's also a penitential psalm by King David. And the context of Psalm 51, which is probably the most famous uh, and well-known confession of sin and repentance, Psalm 51, King David. It's the springtime. All the other kings are out in war with, a, with their army. King David is at home. He's failing as a king. He should be with his people. He's not. He's on top of his roof. He sees a woman bathing. And instead of covering his eyes, because he made a covenant with his eyes, instead of doing that, he sees her, he invites her over, he commits adultery with her, and then when things get really bad and she turns out to be pregnant, he then plans the murder of her husband. That's the context of Psalm 51. He's caught in his sin, he's broken down, he's absolutely undone before the Lord, and he comes and he repents and he confesses his sin, and that's Psalm 51. But in Psalm 51, as he finishes his meditation on repentance, he says this in verse 13. He makes a vow. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David says, I've repented. I'm so sorry, God. Now I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to teach others how to repent. And many scholars have suggested that Psalm 32 is that follow-up. That Psalm 32, a masculine of David, a teaching of David on how to repent. So if you want to know how to truly repent, you got to pay attention to what we see in this portrait of a repentant person. There are four things that we see, four lessons that we can learn from David. The first is this. A truly repentant person acknowledges their sin. Look with me at verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. A truly repentant person doesn't try to cover up their sin, but they acknowledge it to God. Why to God? Because all sins, first and foremost, are sins against God. You see, repentance doesn't occur because you feel bad for your sins. Repentance doesn't come because you regret the consequences of your sins. True repentance begins because you know the personal nature of what you have done. You didn't abstractly break a law or a command, but you have broken the very heart of God. So yeah, you may have hurt people with your words. You may have hurt yourself, but the real victim, the true victim of all that you said, done, and thought is actually the Lord. And so repentance begins by acknowledging this. This is my sin against God. You stop trying to cover it up. You stop blaming people. You stop making excuses. You stop normalizing what you did. You don't try to dismiss it. You don't try to make it small. Instead, you claim it. You take ownership of it. 
Now, it's such a painful thing to do. You know how difficult it is to really come face to face with your own sin and say, yes, this is mine? It's awful. Pride killing. Ego hurting. But you need to acknowledge and own up to that sin before God can forgive it. Because God doesn't just forgive general sin out there, the idea of sin. He forgives specific sins, specific sins. He covers those which you confess and readily acknowledge in deep humility. Now, do you remember in elementary school when the teacher would assign work and everyone's quiet and the teacher would just say, who needs help? Raise your hand. Now, for a kid who has deep pride, you don't know, you know, how to do long division, but you also don't want to be embarrassed and, you know, you're torn. What do you, what do, you do? Now, why does the teacher ask that? It's not like if you raise your hand and say, teacher, I need help. The teachers are going to say, well, stand on your chair. Everybody, look at this idiot. Look at this fool. Look at how much help they need. No, why does the teacher do it? To know to whom to show attention, to show favor. You see, when God says, I want, you need to own up to your sin, he's not doing it so he can out you and accuse you and say, look at this guy. Everyone look at this person. When you confess your sin, it's so that the Lord could turn his attention towards you to give you the mercy and the grace that you need. Not to lay accusation on you, but to forgive you. So you must begin by acknowledging your sin. The second, a truly repentant person hides in Christ alone. Hides in Christ alone. Look with me at verses 6 to 7. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Guys, you know how counterintuitive this is. When we in our sin need to own up to it, who runs toward the judge, the punisher. When you brought home that report card and it wasn't so good, who runs toward dad? You run away. You run toward mom. Who runs toward the one who is going to punish? Yet David says, my hiding place is God. David has learned to profess his hiding place as the Lord. He knows that the safest place in the middle of a storm is in the eye. That the safest place from the wrath of God is the mercy of God. You see, David knew by faith that hiding in God was his only solution, was his only refuge. He didn't yet have a clear vision of that cross-shaped nature of that hiding place. But by faith, he trusted in God, not in fig leaves to cover him. And so what David believed by looking toward in a future looking hope, we believe by remembering a past certainty, a hiding place. What's our hiding place? Well, Apostle Paul, thousands of years ago, a thousand years later in Colossians 3, writes, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He's saying, turn and change your ways. You put on the old or put off the old, put on the new. You have a new life. Live in your repentance. How, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The hiding place to which David looked forward to is the same hiding place that we look backward to. Christ Jesus. 
There's safety in Jesus alone. There's refuge in Jesus alone. He has cleared our sin. Jesus is our assurance of pardon. So that in him, every sin we confess, every guilt that we own up to, every shame that we bear, when it's laid before God in Jesus Christ, it is washed clean. So you cannot find your hiding place in anywhere else or any other person. You know, I read a story this week about Robert Bruce, who is from Scotland, and it's a story that takes place in the 14th century. And Robert Bruce was leading his army against the English when they were fighting for their independence. And they were losing, and so the English army, they captured uh, actually a lot of Robert's army, and they captured actually his bloodhounds, and they set his own bloodhounds out to get him. And as Robert Bruce and his attendant fled for their lives, and they were hiding in the forest, his attendant turned to him and exclaimed, you know, we are done for. They are on your trail. They're going to reveal your hiding place. This is over. Yet Robert Bruce wasn't overtaken by fear. He simply headed for a nearby stream, and he plunged right into it. He waded through the stream until on the other side of the bank, he got out and disappeared into the forest. Now, within minutes, those bloodhounds reached the stream, but they couldn't go any further. Why? Because the trail was broken, and the stream had carried away his scent. Now, this Robert Bruce, not long after, would have the crown of Scotland resting on his head as their king. But upon recounting this story, Erwin Lutzer, this author, he writes these words. He says, The memory of our sins, prodded on by Satan, can be like those baying hounds. But a stream flows, red with the blood of God's own Son. By grace through faith, we are safe. No sin hound can touch us. The trail is broken by the precious blood of Christ. Amen and amen. The rhythm of confession requires that you stop hiding behind other things and you find your hiding place in Christ. For in him alone is safety. The third thing we see is this. A truly repentant person lives in refreshing joy. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. My question is this. Do you know the freedom and the joy of trusting in Jesus? Have you tasted, have you drank from this fountain? You see, because true repentance isn't complete until there is joy found in Jesus Christ. If you've repented and you still have bitterness in your heart, then you have not truly repented. If you've confessed sin, but you still feel defeated and downcast, then you have not truly repented. Because repentance only begins by acknowledging your sins. It is complete by finding your hiding place in Jesus Christ. You see, David here calls the righteous to rejoice. Could that be you? Well, yes. In Christ, you are righteous. You know, David says, he calls the upright in heart to shout for joy. Could that be you? Oh, a thousand times, yes. 
in Jesus Christ. You are upright in heart. You see, the rhythm of confession doesn't take you down to the pits. It lifts you out of the pits to the heights. The rhythm of confession doesn't keep you down in the valleys, but it raises you unto the mountain peaks. The confession of sins doesn't keep you dead, but gives you new life. Bringing all of and owning all of our sin does not bring to us sorrow and sulking, but leads to great shouting and singing. A life lived in daily and regular repentance is a life of unspeakable and unfreshing joy. But here's the secret, guys. Here's the secret. Just like you need to dig deep into the ground in order to strike water for a well, your repentance needs to dig deep into your sin until you find joy in Christ. You see, many of us don't know this. And our Repentance is shallow and surface level. For example, if you go into your backyard and you shovel and you dig 10 feet deep into your ground, you will not hit water. If you stop there, you're going to be left covered in dirt and sweat with no reward and just tired and frustrated. In the same way, if you are shallow and surface level in your repentance and you stop there, you'll just be discouraged and depressed with no results. But if you go deep, you hide nothing, you own up to everything, you confess it truly, then what you will find as you go deeper and deeper is a wealth of steadfast love from God, an ocean of joy for you to swim in, a mountain of glory to be climbed, and a sweet, sweet Savior to be embraced by and enjoyed. For a lot of us, repentance is bitter. Why? Because we've gone down a little bit and we said, this is enough. We must go down further still, for there is great joy to be found in Jesus. Fourth and last, a truly repentant person is blessed and blesses. Now, we finally end where David began. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David starts where we end. David starts with this glorious truth of repentance, that all those who confess their sins are blessed. That word blessed is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. Blessedness is a state. You are under the blessing of God. But let me explain to you how radical David's words are here, because we exist about let's say, maybe 3,000 years after this letter is penned. So when we read this, we don't read it with quite the spectacles or eyes that the ancient readers would have written this, read this. Did you know that the book of Psalms is 150 Psalms long? It's not written in chronological order. Many of you may think so, but it's not written in chronological order. Psalms is 150 individual Psalms that an editor stitched together. Now, I bring that up because... Psalm 51, which we said this psalm is based out, comes afterward, and you go, well, how is that the case? It came after. No, no, it's all stitched together for a purpose. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 begin the book of Psalms because it sets the tone for the rest of the Psalter. Now, an ancient Israelite would have sat down and they would have read this in order. By the time they got to Psalm 32 and they read these words, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
he would have been shocked. Do you know why? Let's test your skill and your knowledge of the Psalms. You open this Psalm and you read, blessed is the man. What do you think of? Psalm 1. You see, the original readers would have known and made the connection right away to that most glorious, most promising of all Psalms. How does the book of Psalms begin? Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does what? Who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm, the book of Psalms begins with Psalm 1. It begins with a vision of a man who has kept himself from every impurity, from every stain, from every sin, from every blemish. He has meditated on God's law only, and as a result, he is blessed. But the question is, who in history has ever done this? Because history would reveal that there was only one man who ever lived this way. There was only one man who ever delighted in the law of God with all of his heart. There was only one man who deserved the full blessing of God offered in Psalm 1, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one true blessed man of Psalm 1 because only Jesus lived the perfect life. So then, how in the world is the sinner in Psalm 32 counted equally as blessed as the blessed man of Psalm 1? How is a person who lives so opposite to Psalm 1, who lives in transgression, who lives in sin, who lives in iniquity, how does that person share the same blessedness as the perfect man of Psalm 1? The answer is because Jesus Christ switched places with the man of Psalm 32. The curses you and I deserve, Jesus absorbed on the cross in our place. So that he who lived perfectly in Psalm 1, loving God's law, staying away from impurity and sin, who received all of the blessing, would give that to you and me. Psalm 32 is a scandal. That a man who has transgression, who has sin, who has iniquity, is blessed like Jesus was? What did he do? Nothing. But Christ did it all. You see, Psalm 1 describes a blessedness that is achieved through faithful living. But Psalm 32 describes a blessedness that is received through faith in Jesus Christ. See, friends, this day, if you would find your hiding place in Jesus, you are blessed by God because he was cursed. This is the gospel. This is the assurance of all who would confess and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. It is so good. And this is yours by faith. Now let me make a point of application as we close. Because you see, the gospel is not just power to save. The gospel is power to transform. Receiving what you did not deserve, how then can you refuse to give what others do not deserve? 
I want you to understand how the gospel actually transforms. Because as you develop a rhythm of confession and repentance in your life, daily admitting your fault, acknowledging your sin, finding Christ to be your hiding place, the gospel will begin to form and shape you into a blessing to other people. How can you be proud and feel superior to anybody else if you are daily confronting your own sin in confession? How can you ever be superior to anybody else if you are daily repenting of that sin? How can you judge and be critical of others when you, da- when you are daily met with the humility and sacrifice of Jesus as you repent before the Lord? How can you hold grudges and withhold forgiveness from anybody when you are daily pardoned by the grace of God that you so humbly ask him for? There is no way that in your daily repentance before God that you could receive these things, turn around and withhold anything. It's because of the overflow of blessing that we receive in Jesus Christ that we in turn then become a blessing to others. When you practice the daily and weekly rhythm of gospel-centered repentance, you receive this great blessing, this free blessing from God, and it begins to change you so that you become a source of great blessing to others. If some of you are judgmental, some of you withhold forgiveness, some of you are critical, you feel superior to others, you are only critical and critique other people, let me ask you a question. How is your daily confession and repentance? You see, because I would stake my entire fortune. It's not much. But I would stake my entire fortune that those who act in such a way do not have a daily practice and rhythm of confession of sin before God. It's incompatible because the gospel will transform you. As you are met with forgiveness, you are quick to forgive. As you are met with great grace, you are generous in giving grace. As you admit your sin, you are quick to be humble. As you get what you don't deserve, you are so abundant in being gracious. So the rhythm of confessing powerfully every single day, it transforms you, it forms you, it shapes you. So that you not only receive a great blessing from God, but you become a great blessing from God. Pray with me. Father, we come to the Lord's table. And as we come to your table, Lord, we do not come with any pride or any of our own righteousness. We come with filthy rags. We come with open hands. We come with hungry hearts. Lord, would you feed us in the table? Feed us through the grace of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, receive the Lord's benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our hiding place, and the love of God the Father Almighty, would send to us his son so that we would be considered blessed. And the Holy Spirit who takes this good news not only breaks through our hard hearts but transforms us to both receive the blessing and to be a blessing. May the blessing of this triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore.